I'm Pinky and I'm Lucy and you're listening to Thank Folk for Feminism. You sure are. Hey, how has your week been, Pinky? Oh, it's been so good. I am so excited by our news and our mini holiday this week, Lucy. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because, it, you know, it's just another sign of how Thank Folk for Feminism has run away from us wildly and we've booked a joint COVID safe holiday gang. <laughs> <laughs> And we're gonna go to Worthy Pastures, which is Glastonbury, but not Glastonbury, but at Worthy Farm, which is a place that's very dear to both of our hearts and a centre of our activism and a place we go to recharge ourselves every year. So it'll be just magic to be there in the fields. Oh, and it feels like one of the places right where you and I always catch up pretty much on an annual basis. We don't see each other physically that often, but Worthy Farm, that's the space we're always at. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And it's been kind of really nice to put things in the diary to look forward to after, um, you know, and we're all aware that plans can change, but it was really nice to plan for some positive stuff in the future and not just be looking at the news thinking, ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's starting to feel like a more hopeful place to be I think which is really important for sure so this month we are exploring issues facing the LGBTQ plus community um, and we are so over the moon to be joined by some absolutely stellar guests um, this week we caught up with left field alumni Grace Petrie to find out more about her activism and to get her take on issues facing the queer community in folk music Grace is undeniably the voice of a generation. She highlights issues around sexuality and gender. She is a trans rights activist and she speaks frequently on issues of politics. In this episode, we covered um, topics around her songwriting process, the issue of gender balance in the Folk Award and difficulties faced when raising issues when you're a freelance artist, as well as music's power and ability to help create change. Oh, we really hope you enjoyed the chat. Grace is such an engaging performer, um, but she's also just such an engaging and eloquent speaker. I just found the whole chat enlightening and we really hope you enjoy what she had to say. Hi, Grace. How are you? I'm, I'm very well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think like like a lot of us, I'm, I'm I imagine I'm I'm like all of your other guests. I'm probably going to start by saying I'm coming off the back of a very strange year of uh, of of no no shows. Um, but um, I think I'm I think I'm okay. Yeah, I'm I'm really uh, starting to sort of look towards the hopeful prospect of maybe actually doing some shows this year. And uh, and you know, I think like so many of us, I don't really know what I'm doing with that. An audience to show off in front of so uh I think I'm yeah I'm I'm kind of I'm through the sort of I'm glad that we're, we're through the winter and uh looking looking ahead so I'm feeling pretty good yeah oh that's lovely to hear and I know what you mean like online performance is such a different ball game no matter how comfortable you feel on a stage so I'm quite sure those first gigs back are going to be immense to the lucky few who are able to get those socially distanced tickets right um I mean I think I'm just going to burst into tears you know what I mean I, that's what I imagine I think the moment that I get in front of an audience I'm probably just going to cry because yeah absolutely I mean I've done I, I I'm so grateful to people tuning into like streamed shows and stuff but I just uh you know I kind of I got into this for the uh for the applause and the adoration of the spotlight and it's not really, <laughs> doesn't really translate I don't think over over zoom but um yeah absolutely I can't I'm, I'm looking forward to it very much well, this leads us really nicely, actually, into the first question we wanted to ask you today, because it's about songwriting and your approach to writing, what inspires you to write. And I suppose on the back of what you've just said, um, you write a lot of songs that are about that audience relationship, right? They're uplifted by singing them in a space with other people, to other people. So perhaps some reflections on that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I, I mean, I write quite a lot of songs about politics. Um, or I, I mean, I, I I have done sort of that. That has been the the bulk of of, of my songwriting has been a, a lot of sort of protest songs, um, 
And it's so funny because, uh, you know, what, like, I mean, obviously the Conservatives won the election in, in 2019, and that was like, personally, on a personal level, that was like definitely the worst loss, I think, that we've had. You know, I mean, like none, none of them felt great, but that one really felt like, oh, this is the end. Because I think a lot of us kind of got behind this very, um, uh, what felt like a really radical movement. And it felt like the first time, you know, I'm, I'm 33 and it felt like the first time there was a really radical mainstream movement in Britain that you could really get behind. And I think a lot of us really knew that was like the end of that in a lot of ways, or that, you know, we, we you know, the Corbyn project or whatever you want to call it is over. And, and that was ideologically a real kind of grief. And then what has come since then, obviously like the political decisions that have been made as a result of the pandemic and the way it's been handled, uh, you know, it, it sort of feels like it's such a fertile time for resistance. It feels like people should be kind of crying out for, you know, like, I mean, it's the irony that like, if we weren't all locked in our houses, we definitely should be on the streets, you know, yeah. but, but I think um, I find that, I found that like, it's been a really interesting time for me songwriting wise because I, I was after immediately after the election I just felt completely and utterly kind of black pills with it you know and really really like I, I was finding it too hard to kind of get a grip on on any of it because it just felt so the kind of sense of loss and sense of defeat or felt and I don't want to it's not about any one particular party obviously I just think when you've been really engaged in something and really really like felt like you were completely you know, in it with both hands, like to kind of uh, try and write about that when it feels like, you know, so much of the time I just look around at this country and I just think I really am in the minority, you know, like the majority of people think this is totally how things should work. You know, the majority of people are like on board with a monarchy, on board with capitalism. And, uh, and I think that's the trick of protest songwriting, like is to try and find those people who do like feel just as alienated as you do and as a way to be like you know you're not uh you're not on your own and I think you know you're you're totally right Lucy that like the the it's such a sort of it's been such a strange bittersweet ironic headspace to find yourself experiencing something that is so universal like everybody's experienced coronavirus everyone's experienced lockdown but none of us can actually commune in one place and it's such a weird thing. Like a lot of people are saying to me like, oh, you must have loads to write about. And I have, I have found ways, ways in to write about it in the last year, but um, it's been from angles that I didn't expect, you know, and a lot of it isn't really political. It's kind of much more about like the kind of human day-to-day -day experiences of lockdown and stuff. Um, so it's been, it's been really, really, really interesting, but it's definitely made me realize how much, um, you know, I really, I, I got into this for connection you know and I think it's really made me realize that I will I will never take that for granted ever again you know I'll never take the ability to be in a room with people and have everybody singing the same song in one space even if they have to stand two meters away from each other you know I'll never take that for granted again I think oh you've just given me goosebumps <laughs> about that moment <laughs> Yeah, I feel like we're going to have to have like handouts of Kleenex for everybody that walks in the room rather than hand sanitizers. Like we need tissue stations for those first gigs back. <laughs> That's a good idea. I like that. I like that. But you're right. You know, because after the 2019 election, you're dead right. It just felt what well, felt to me like a wave after wave, just a barrage of difficult stuff and bad decisions and things that just felt so diametrically opposed to looking after people which you know is the core of I think you know the socialist views that we three at least share and I, and I think is shared by a lot of people within our folk industry but you mentioned that some of your ways into writing about the virus have been more on that sort of personal day-to-day -day thing but do you have like of course, the personal is political, right? Of course, we have these big stomping numbers that directly address the government, but actually giving voice to the people without one, um, as we've all been, right, unable to share our voices. There's something there's something massive in that. And I know you've written, of course, a lot of songs that people wouldn't consider to be part of your political canon. Do you see a crossover or do you view them as very different um, forms of writing? Well, yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting question and, and I, could, I couldn't agree more that, yeah, the personal is political. 
and I think um and, and also I'm you know I'm just a massive believer that like I mean everything is political what isn't what isn't political in in you know in the world that we live in we're living in a society the way that we relate to each other there's politics in absolutely all of it um but I think that it's interesting for me because you know, obviously I am a woman and I live in a patriarchal society and I am, you know, a lesbian and I'm a butch woman and I live, you know, in a kind of a world where like heterosexuality or heteronormativity, heteronormativity is like the mainstream. So I think that like, and it took, it took me like a, a long time when I was like younger, I kind of only really got my head around in my like mid twenties. I only got my head around the idea that like, my identity itself is inherently political. And like, even when I sing like a love song, there are people who find that a political act because it's a love song about a woman. And, um, and I think it's kind of interesting how like, you know, I, th I think there's a lot of people who've kind of like come across me and kind of just thought like, you know, what, like, why is she always so angry? Like, why can't she just like sing like a nice song sort of thing? And, and, and I'm like, I mean, you know, the, like, I'm just thinking about my life, you know, like my, my, my life, you know, like I come into contact with, with structures that oppress me like day to day. And like, that is my daily life. That's not, you know, like that is my kitchen sink lyrics. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's not my fault that you made a world that like, <laughs> when I write about my literal day to day existence, it sounds angry, you know? Um, so I, yeah, I think it's, um, I, de I definitely, so I definitely think like, I think the person is always political, but I, I also think like, particularly if you belong to any sort of marginalized group, you know, even just kind of talking about your life, like even, even when, you know, when I, when I do do gigs, like it, it's just, it feels like an enormous privilege to have any degree of platform at all to kind of to stand on a stage and be um, like a, just like a visible butch lesbian. You know, I think about how much that would have how much of a difference that would have made to me when I was younger and like see anybody who looked anything like me on stage or screen anywhere. So I think it's like, it's, it's, it's like both things are true, but sorry, this is such a meandering answer I realized, but, uh, but I, I'm coming around to a point, which is that like, you know, I also think that like, there is in, in, in the pandemic, like that, that there is an opportunity here, I think for, for socialism, or for, you know, like left wingers or whatever you want to call it for people who believe in progressive politics. Like there is this opportunity to be like, you know, we, we had probably like a once in a lifetime opportunity over the last year to look at how we do society on such a like zoomed out scale. You know, like if you, I mean, like here, you know, like if you'd have said to us, you know, in, in January, 2019, that there will come a point in April when we will recognize that the key workers include, uh, you know, supermarket cashiers and, uh, you know, street sweepers and like that what we, what, all the things that we regard as like essential work will really be completely thrown into incredibly sort of sharp examination. And nobody, you know, like at the height of lockdown, nobody was saying, I really hope the bankers can make it to work. You know, nobody was saying, I, I really hope the stock exchange, like, I really hope that like, you know, the city of London isn't interrupted. <laughs> like, you know, what, what we regard as, as what we need to do for each other and how we value that labor and how those people are paid and how, you know, and uh, like all this stuff around, like, I know that the, the clapping for the NHS has been completely politicized, but I think that was a really interesting moment for me where I feel like, you know, yes, like having free healthcare at the point of use in this country is a miraculous thing. And actually like the NHS is so maligned and gets made to, into such a like political football that I think after so many elections over the last 10 years, you know, like pe people kind of, I, I, th I just think it was like, it, it, we have an opportunity here to sort of say, look at like what has become important, you know, in a time of real actual crisis, you know, like the probably the biggest crisis since the Second World War, you know, what we really what we really realize actually is that like money isn't going to keep us alive. We're going to keep each other alive. You know, like the only thing that we really have is society and we're only as strong as, as we are together. You know, so I think even just writing about like I feel lonely in lockdown, you know, which I have written songs like that, but it's something that is like it translates on a political level because it's like what other thing have we all communally experienced like this? 
certainly nothing in my lifetime, you know, I can't think of a single time that we've ever been so united globally as we were in the past year. Sorry, that was so long and like on and on and on to other things. Not at all. It was amazing. I have a question. I think, I think backtracking a little bit. Um, you were talking, Grace, about that kind of personal is political, right? About that aspect of you singing as a lesbian woman comes across in a certain way, you know, and we know, and Lucy and I have had this conversation before about when you're a member of the LGBT community and the world reads everything as heterosexual, how you're constantly coming out, how you're constantly feeling like you're meeting a barrage. But on the flip, I guess it creates a pressure, right? Do you feel like there is a sense for you as an openly lesbian protest folk singer that you also have to carry that battle and you have to be the person speaking about these issues because there are so few, so few voices? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, it, I think um, at points in my life I have, you know, and, and I think back to... Um, because I always wanted to be a singer, you know, like I didn't ever really want to do anything else. And when I was a teenager, I had this really strong sense that, um, I, and, and now I look back and it's just like such kind of internalized homophobia, right? But I, but I had this real strong sense when I was a teenager that I was like, I never want to be known as like a lesbian singer. You know, I just want to be known as a singer. Like, I, you know, like I don't want lesbian to ever be a part of it. And then I kind of came like full circle to um uh so around like not long after like the me too uh, movement kind of started um i wrote a song um called black tie which is like a kind of uh letter to my teenage self and basically it's kind of a letter about it's kind it's, it's a song about being a butch lesbian basically and the experience of being a butch lesbian and kind of feeling at, like when i was growing up like i was sort of like wrong in all of these ways and like um Basically, I'm, it's kind of me talking to my teenage self and just saying like, you're fine, don't worry about it. And like one day you're gonna work out that like it was the world that was the problem and not you. Um, but I, but you know, I, I think since I wrote that song and it's, it's like m definitely the most personal thing that I've ever done. Um, I kind of, I've been, I've been immensely lucky that there's been a lot of um, like younger queer people who've really like identified with it and tapped into it. And so I get a lot of them coming to in the before times. I got a lot of them coming to gigs, and uh, and now you know we'd have these really like cool conversations, and it kind of brought me around to this realization that like I'm I'm I am like not only like I, is it cool that I'm like the lesbian singer songwriter, but also like I'm really proud man to be the lesbian singer songwriter. And I think if that is something that's like synonymous with my name, then like. That's 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 something that I'm really really proud to feel like it, it, it. I just think about you know when I was when I was a kid, that lack of representation, you know, had such a damaging effect on me, and it made me feel so alone, you know, and and really made me kind of, um, so yeah, so insecure in so many ways, and and it's so funny to me now that I think like the the it wasn't even like anybody I didn't particularly have anybody homophobic in my life it wasn't even like anyone was giving me a hard time for who I was it was just literally there was no there were no other people like me that I could point to and be like oh that's okay that's like like there was just no women I could look at and say oh she looks like me I guess that is an acceptable way to be a woman you know so I think if I if if I can be that for other people then that's an amazing thing you know and and like it absolutely does feel like a responsibility sometimes. And, you know, at the moment, like, you know, we're sort of having this conversation about uh, trans rights in the queer community and in the feminist community. And, you know, um, I see a lot of people kind of claiming to speak for lesbians who often aren't lesbians. And I see a lot of people sort of um, putting forward this viewpoint that absolutely I don't recognize and none of my lesbian friends recognize and none of my queer women friends recognize and and I do feel the responsibility to kind of say well you know like let us speak for ourselves you know what I mean and 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 it's a funny thing because I think we're conditioned as women to be really um you know we're not conditioned to be like everyone should listen to me do you know what I mean so like when for example a straight man decides that he is going to be like the leader of the transphobic movement and he gets so much, you know, airtime for saying, well, actually, I think you'll find that this is really hard for butch lesbians. 
like I think it, you know we're we're conditioned to be like well I, you know who am I to stand up and say and I you know I do feel like when there are these kind of um inter or I guess like within the community issues you know yeah I, like sometimes I do feel like well I don't know if I should stick my head up here but I do feel like some people for better or for worse do in some way like look to me as some sort of platform holder and I feel like that's a responsibility so I should but also I have all this kind of like internalized patriarchy that makes me think who am I to stand up and say anything but at the same time it's like well men never think that so we're just gonna have you know we just like we have to stand up and and, and have some kind of response you know so it's a funny one and I, and I think we live in a really interesting time where we're all on social media all the time and like you know I'm 33 years old and I feel like I don't know anything and I'm still learning all of the time you know and I'm not an expert on anything I'm not an expert on lesbianism or gender rights or feminism or folk music or I'm not even an expert on Grace Petrie do you know what I mean and and, and like it does feel scary sometimes to be like am I going to put this out in the world because I might get a lot of flack for it but I think actually on the whole as long as you're committed to like learning and committed to listening, I think, is the major thing, isn't it? And com committed to like, again, I just think it comes back to the thing of connecting to people and not wanting to alienate anybody, you know? And I, and I think as long as you're committed to like, not going into things, believing that you're a hundred percent right without listening to everybody involved. You know, I think it's, I think there are ways to navigate it, but yeah, I, I do, I do feel the responsibility of it a lot. And, um, and um, you know we're all we're all just trying not to get cancelled, aren't we? All the time. At the end of the day, that's the that's the modern uh, that's the modern uh, predicament that that musicians find themselves in. I think. Thank you for always putting your head above the parapet. I think also people that follow your music and enjoy your music perhaps use you as a barometer for issues they haven't had an opportunity to um, engage with. You know what what does Grace? think you know I, I've definitely done it like with Billy Bragg in past years you know what does B Billy will know why, how I should feel about this let me go and see and I think people probably feel very similarly about you but as you say because you're always presenting it with a this is a this is a conversation right art, art can't be passive it has to be this growing evolving learning beast or it or it's useless and then like gosh, we can't feel even more useless than we have not being able to gig it. We've got to write things that are meaningful. And you've talked in this, um, in this last answer about how your own um, emotions and experiences have been barriers sometimes to speaking out and, um, and being proud of your identity. But I wondered if you had any reflections on um, times where you felt your sexuality was a barrier within your um, career in terms of people booking you or connecting with your audience. I mean, no doubt there are multiple times this has happened, but we'd love to hear about your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I want to say, first of all, like, thank you very much for asking me to be on the podcast and like, particularly because it's a podcast with folk in the title, you know, and there are a lot of people who just definitely think I, I don't count in the folk world or I don't belong in the folk world. And I mean, you know, to be honest, I don't don't want to offend any of your listeners, but like folk is probably the place that I've had the, the, the toughest crowds, you know, and um and I think that like, it's, you know, I, t I talk so much about being butch, um, partially because it's like my new thing since I kind of, it's only like, it's only like in the past four years that I've been like, hey, that's not an insult. I can kind of own that identity in a positive way. But I do think like, it's a very different, um, it's a different sort of, it's a different type of homophobia, I think, you know, and there's no, there's no hierarchies of homophobia, but. I think like there is a particular cross-section of misogyny and homophobia that I think butch women kind of face. And um, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, on the folk scene, uh, a lot of audiences that I've kind of come up against in the folk scene and, and by no means all of them and by no means most of them, but there are rooms that I've played on the folk scene where, you know, I think people are uncomfortable with a woman who is like wearing a tie and swearing and singing songs about women. And it's a, it's a discomfort, 
And I think it's a discomfort for a lot of these people who wouldn't identify it as homophobia and wouldn't identify it as misogyny at all. But actually, if it was the youngins singing this song, then they they would not have this response, you know. And so I think in, in lots of ways, it's been more kind of like um, insipid, I suppose. Like, you know, I, I don't think it, you know, I, I'm not familiar with any experiences where people were kind of, I don't think anybody's sitting there going, I'm not going to book lesbians, you know what I mean? But I do think people have seen me and come away from it going, I don't like, you know, like the words that I get a lot are things like um, abrasive. You know, I've had that a lot on the folk scene, like, oh, she's just very abrasive. And, you know, a lot of the time when I was kind of younger and I was kind of first starting out on the folk scene, like it would, these sorts of criticisms, they, they would they would get kind of leveled at the musicality. They'd get leveled at my sort of ability. And, you know, like a, a criticism that I had a lot was just like, oh, you know, she's just shouting. She's just shouting and swearing and like, and, you know, there was a lot of times that I, there were times in the past that I really kind of took that to heart, particularly when I was gigging, you know, I used to be in a um, uh, a six piece collective with Lady Maisry and Ohili and Tito uh, called Coven. And they're all obviously incredible singers and incredible musicians. And a lot of times that I get these criticisms, it would really make me think like, yeah, I, I'm really, I really don't cut it with those guys. You know, those guys are like such incredible musicians and I'm, and, and it's really like, and I'd really sort of take it uh, like on the chin as a, as a sort of, yeah, indictment of my musical ability. And then I think, you know, I just played some different rooms and, and I was, you know, I did it. I was, I was amazingly lucky enough to get a tour supporting Frank Turner, which is like a completely different audience to a lot of folk clubs, you know, and you know, at, at those gigs, the critics were kind of saying like really nice things about my voice. Do you know what I mean? Because obviously in a punk scene, like it's, you know what I'm saying? Like it's like a, a, a focus on like a delicate vocal ability is not always like the most highly prized thing in the punk scene. I'm really trying not to offend anybody here. I'm like, I don't want to offend the folks. I don't offend the punks. I don't offend anybody. I want everybody to keep coming to my gigs when I'm allowed to have gigs. But yeah, I think, so I think like what I'm trying to say is, is that, you know, I've had some wonderful experiences in folk, and I think that there are, there is a, there is a huge wonderful audience within folk that absolutely embody the progressive tradition. And I've, I've, you know, I've had some incredible experiences with like other queer folk musicians and queer folk audiences. But also, you know, I have been that person on stage at Sidmouth, you know, playing to like a group of like you know, basically sort of UKIP voting, telegraph reading, like pretty old school, like misogynists. And, you know, I, th I think they do object to me in a way that I think that they don't necessarily recognize it's homophobic, but I think it is because, you know, I think we've all experienced that thing where like, you know, the folk scene kind of likes their, 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 their female singers to like wear dresses and look pretty. And like, if you're not gonna do that, I do think, I've just had a lot of experiences where I've gone out in front of an audience and I know from the moment they've seen me that I'm starting from minus five, you know, and I don't mind starting from zero. We all start from zero, but starting from minus five and, and I've seen them and I, and I sort of have developed this ability to kind of, I've done a lot of work with a lot of stand-up comedians and I think it's really um, influenced the way that I conduct myself on stage. I kind of talk quite a lot and I do try and make jokes, you know, but I think, if I'm totally honest, most of the time I'm, I'm sort of doing that. I've learned to do that to ingratiate myself with an audience because I am used to going out and being like, okay, you guys don't like me on site, you know? And like, I can win you over because I'm going to be really funny and I'm going to make you feel really comfortable. But I do think like not everybody has to do that, you know? And I think th these are the kinds of questions that we would probably benefit from asking ourselves in the folk scene. But I think there's also something linked to that, isn't there, in terms of um, like the spaces you're walking into. So one of the other criticisms, for want of a better word, that I've levelled at the folk scene is that when I've walked into small local folk clubs with my wife, like we've been looked at, you know, nobody has to say anything, nobody has to do anything overt to make you feel uncomfortable. But there is a moment and a look and a and a sudden realization that you don't fit, and there's probably a very naive question in that of oh is that your friend or is that your sister or you know whatever it is to try and undermine it. But the way to make artists like you 
be able to perform better in spaces is to have people like me in the crowd in the audience. So how do we come at it from both sides in order to enable spaces to feel better? I, I totally get what you're saying. And, and, and for a time, I, start, I, tr I sort of tried to start a folk club in Leicester. It sort of died a death, partially because I just don't, I'm not very good at organising things. Um, but, uh, you know, and I remember it's a really interesting example that I, um, we were doing a, a raffle, obviously it couldn't be a folk club without a raffle. And um, somebody, I can't, sort of can't remember the context, but I think somebody had left a handbag on a chair and uh, somebody was drawing the raffle and said, by the way, um, did anybody leave this, this handbag? And um, this gentleman in the audience said, oh, that's mine. And like, it was clearly a joke. And like the audience laughed. And it's just one of those things that it's like, it's so ingrained and it's so casual, you know? And like, and, and how do you, like, what do you do about that? Because that person I think was just, you know, making a joke at a gig. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I, and I know that it's, I know that a lot of people would think that I'm incredibly humorless for like noticing or remembering, but I'm thinking about the person who like, there might be a, a man who wants to come to a folk gig with a handbag, or there might be, you know, all manner of gender expressions and gender identities represented by clothes and accessories that you just don't, you never realize how you're making people feel. You know, and I used to, I used to be a youth worker before I was a full-time museum, and I was an LGBT youth worker. And I remember doing this training once where, um, and this woman who was doing this training said something that really stayed with me which was that um, marginalized people will always need a sign that they're welcome. And, marginal and people who aren't marginalized don't walk into a room and look for signs that they're welcome. They walk into a room and assume that they are. So I think that's the thing is like, and that's the challenge of the folk scene, you know, and, and it encompasses an awful lot of things. You know, I know that in the folk scene in England in the past couple of years, there has been and there continues to be this conversation about Blackface Morris. You know, and I know that there's, I, I know the arguments for and against, and I know that there are a lot of people who really righteously believe that this is nothing to do with race. And, you know, the, these, you know, it, it comes from a different tradition, but it's like, well, there's a lot of arguments that that isn't even true anyway. But aside from all of that, if you are Morris dancing in a city center and people of color or black people are walking by and they see, and they don't know the traditions, they don't know that it represents coal dust or, or you know, whatever you reckon. Like, it's about like, why, why do we want to do something that is perceived as so hostile? You know, and I think that is the question that we want to ask ourselves in terms of making, making a space for anything, like whether it's a gig, like when we're, we're trying to build community all the time, you know, like, and the folk scene has, has wonderful, you know, bones of community in it. I've met some amazing people. And I think, you know, like it, it's, it's, it's the, you know, like it's one of the forms of music, I think that is community is at the heart of it, you know, because there isn't like a loads of money coming from various other organizations. It's still, you know, on, on the whole, it's, it's still a lot of people are like running their local folk club. You know, it's still a lot of volunteers who are making that happen. So like, I understand that it can come, it can come across a bit kind of aggressive, like somebody like me coming in and being like, you're doing it all wrong, you need to make it more inclusive. But again, it's just those things that like, if you if you haven't lived a kind of marginalized experience, you won't realize the signs that you're putting out to people. Do you know what I mean? You won't realize that like, that that little joke that you made about the handbag at the raffle that you were, you were just trying to break the ice, but that might, there might be somebody who's never gonna come back because you said that. You know, and it's about just trying to have those conversations to make those spaces safe. Well, and there's that double issue, isn't there, of, you know, we also know folk clubs are struggling, they need young people to come in and pick up and take the batons and carry the folk clubs on. But most young people won't go if they don't feel welcome. And more, I think, you know, there is a, a generational aspect of how on board younger generations are with issues around intersectionality and understandings of race and racism and understanding of trans rights and transphobia and understanding of sexuality and gender identity which i think you know for for older generations just isn't necessarily on their minds uh, the issue then comes that you get the, you know, the criticism that was lobbied at me and Lucy of being woke and being lefty and being liberal. And it's like, you know, well, surely that's what the folk scene is and should be. Like, you know, it's not a criticism. I 
absolutely absolutely and you know like like what what are we doing if we're not talking about the injustices of the time you know that's what folk music has always been about it always has been about that it doesn't it, to my mind like it's it's totally useless if we're not talking about the injustices of the day and like these are the problems of the day like we we are living through a time of like incredible you know, like, and long overdue, like civil rights unrest, like Black Lives Matter, you know, and, and obviously like the, the, the kind of conversations that we're having about gender are also very long overdue, you know, like, and and it's, it is, it, it, you know, you do absolutely make a really interesting point about the kind of generational divide of folk clubs. And like, I mean, I, I do come down on the side that like, you know diversify or die like i think either you're gonna have to like learn but these are these are the issues of the day and like you know i i recognize that it's it's probably gross if you're like in your 70s and you were like you are a, a really powerful feminist and in the in the 70s and 80s you're on the front line to have somebody like me you know like some snot-nosed kid coming in and being like you're doing feminism wrong like i you know i think that must be really hard but also, you know, I'm completely and utterly resigned, not resigned. I welcome the fact that like when I'm in my seventies, I'm sure that there's gonna be kids in their thirties and twenties that are telling me that I did it all wrong in 2021. And I think ever was it thus, do you know what I mean? I think it's just the circle of life. We move on and that is progression and that is progressive politics, you know? And, uh, and what, are, what are we up to on the folk scene? if we can like sing songs about the peasants revolt and everybody sings along and everybody loves that, but we can't sing about like these actual pressing injustices that are happening right now in your town, in this church hall that we do this folk club in, you know, there's a food bank here three times a week. And like, what are we all voting for? Like, I think the, you know, like it, it, it's gotta be uncomfortable. You know, I think it, if it's not uncomfortable then it's not doing anything. Yes, yes, that last sentence totally sums up I think how we feel and I think you know like I think about sort of pop music you know there's some great pop music out there I'm not dissing it but I, I find myself drawn to the sort of music that discusses these difficulties do you know what I mean like if it's about something that's completely inane what does it do like yeah it's fun to dance to but it's not doing anything it's not active and I, I just wanted to jump back a little bit and really thank you for such astute, eloquent summing up of your experience of walking into folk clubs and festivals because as a straight cisgendered woman, this isn't an experience I share. And I just know that the experience I have had listening to you speak is what our listeners will have, you know, not just, you know, confirming what we suspect was true but to hear about um you know this ingrained misogyny so deeply affecting you know what should performers perform right we're there to entertain your job is made so much harder anybody's job is made so much harder walking into a room of I call it the entertain me face and it involves folded arms and a look of you've got to prove I'm worth spending my evening with which just makes it so much harder right so much less fun and the idea that yourself and other LGBTQ plus artists are starting from minus zero I think is a wake up call that the folk scene needs to realize that their that their um, that their left wing wokeness, as we say, is not implied. It needs outlining. And so we think about, you know, we've discussed that we think that folk is, of course, not as good as it could be on these issues. Perhaps we should discuss some, you know, uh, direct ways they could address this. Um, I'm thinking. Um, policies and statements booking more lgbtq plus artists um festivals curating spaces for those artists that had to raise their voices in do you have any kind of um things that you think like direct action that you think would help start the ball rolling yeah it's a great question i mean I wish I had a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's not your job to have every answer, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, um, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, as we were saying before, I think there are like ways that we can make spaces seem welcoming. And, you know, and I think um, 
just the the open-hearted kind of attitude to want to do that i mean like i know it's kind of it's a bit hack to talk about like um toilets and like the gender of toilets but i do think like is that something that festivals are really thinking that folk festivals are really thinking about you know that is something that you can do that is like it's not just about having you know gender neutral toilets it's about what message that sends you know what i mean what's like are you trying to send a message actually to like trans or gender queer people that like or non-binary people that like you are welcome at this festival you know like and, and i think things like that just sort of go a long way mm. um, yeah i mean i have a big problem with the with the folk awards and uh and and there's there's just a ridiculous gender imbalance in the folk awards there is a very deep entrenched habit in the BBC Folk Awards that like, there's a category for singer of the year and there's a category for musician of the year. And musician of the year is almost always an all male uh, shortlist. I know it's been won by a woman, I think three times in the history of the Folk Awards and every other year it's been a man. I think it's actually, I, I did the stats a couple of years ago and I believe I'm right in saying that it's actually been won more times by a man called Martin than it's been won by a woman. Like it's pretty- <laughs> yeah. Sorry, what a, what a harrowing and brilliant fact all in one. <laughs> I know, right? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta find the stats. You know, find the joy in the stats where you can. Um, but obviously, there's this idea that like, and the, and the singer is often a woman, you know. But also like, uh, so I yeah, I just think like things like that where like, it's worth looking at who's judging these things. You know, like are the panels like gender balanced? You know, like is, is the um, I don't know. I don't want to like ruffle any feathers, but like. Are the people who are on these panels like, are they people who've had this job for 20 years, you know, like, and they have the same biases? Like, should we maybe rotate the panel a bit more so that like the kinds of voices that have power don't end up kind of gathering power and keeping it for 20 years and nothing moves on? You know, I think like, um, and that's like, maybe that's like a weird, quite arbitrary example, but I do think it's like, it's one of the biggest sort of stages or, or pageants that we have in folk, you know, and it's worth saying like, Hey, like, have we looked at this? Like, like, why, why is it the case that like year on year on year on year, it's just like four blokes are up for musician of the year, and nobody like says anything about it, even though this is a, this is a, an industry that like the level of like rich female musicianship that we have on the British folk scene is absolutely incredible. And you're sitting here and trying to tell me that like Eliza Carthy, Hannah James, Belinda, who they have never been nominated for musician of the year, like what do you know? And like, and on and on and on and on and on. Do you know what I mean? But like. We're talking about virtuoso musicians. So like, just, I don't know, things like that, I guess. <laughs> um, but I think linked to that, I think I'm right in saying that the judging panel of the BBC Folk Awards isn't even public. So you can't even scrutinise the issues around whether or not it is or isn't balanced or whether or not it is or isn't representative. You know, and we know from previous conversations with the likes of Stevie Smith, actually, it is possible. You know, the Americana Music Awards is balanced yeah. and they've been able to create more nominations and more diversity by looking at the people who are judging it. So it's not curveball. It's a wholly sensible, mm. wholly easy thing to start fixing quite quickly. Yeah. And like, to be honest with you, like, I think and this this obviously goes for, you know, everything, not not just what we're talking about in folk, but like. You know, it would it would be nice to see like the men calling it out, to be honest, because like it's so easy to like it's so easy for these criticisms to get dismissed as like, you know, there are definitely will be people who listen to this and think Grace Peter did that podcast and she's complained about not getting nominated for any folk awards. You know what I mean? Like and that that's not what I'm saying. Like I but but it would be nice maybe if like some of the men who like do turn up on those same sorts of shortlists every year, maybe just like kind of took a bit took some of the slack a bit, you know what I mean? So that it doesn't have to be us, you know, every year kind of being like, sorry, can we just draw attention to this incredible inequity of opportunity? Because it's just so easy for that to get dismissed as bitterness. And then obviously we kind of end up in this ridiculous, vicious cycle where then the same people are like, yeah, you know, they're just a bit angry, aren't they? And it's like, yeah, I mean, like you would be too though, to be fair, you know what I mean? Like, again, it comes back to like, don't make a world that, that enrages me if you don't want, to, don't want me to be angry. <laughs> <laughs> but there you go, we're at the crux of the problem, right? Even if we take away the uh, LGBTQ plus experience, the crux of the problem is women are not allowed to say what they think. Yeah. Right, you know, and obviously we, of course, you know, we're all lucky enough to uh, have progressive spaces where that isn't the case. 
But you're right that when somebody does stick their head above the parapet, it is more problematic if it is a woman. And um, I think that's a really good reflection for us to have on the podcast, actually, and why we, when we think about women in folk music, often we think about, um, as you say, women in dresses. Dress is great. I'm wearing a dress. It's all good. But, you know, women in dresses with beautiful voices that sing high pitch, perhaps they sing like traditional songs or only traditional, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't, um, I think, in people's mind, include the kind of like the the breadth of what folk music is like it would if they were thinking about a, a man in folk music. Perhaps to most people, a man in folk music is a dude with a guitar. Well, already we've changed the, the, the perspective there, haven't we? We've gone, women are singers, men are musicians. That's problematic. But also the notion that they're standing there with a the guitar suggests that they could be writing their own songs, that they could be sharing a new narrative. Well, that's not as problematic as, you know, kind of stepping out there. And I think the folk scene, um, you know, it needs to it needs to find a way to not just book women who are different from that stereotype, but to celebrate them, to uplift them, to allow them to be the ones that creep up their um Oh, I can't think what the word is, that creep up the listings, that creep up the lineup, right? They're the people that we allow. And myself and Pinky, we were reflecting the other day, are actually, there's probably three women or three female-led acts that we can think of that that might be allowed to headline a, fest, a folk festival. When you think about how many women there are making music in this scene, how shocking that it's the same women over and over again who are considered, um, I don't know, dancey enough, famous enough, big band enough, whatever it is festival bookers are looking for. And we've got a real problem, haven't we, that, that these if women aren't being uplifted, it stands to reason that women who have any other kind of uh, diversity have even less voice and even less agency within this scene. Completely, and and I and I think you know, absolutely. I, I think um, when you know when when I reference even like you know, straight cisgender women in dresses like singing on the folk scene, like I feel like I'm even like that's me parroting the same sort of misogyny, do you know what I mean? Because that's not like, that sounds very sort of dismissive when I say it that way. I think one of the major problems that we have is, as in a scene as a whole is like, stop commenting on people's appearances. Just stop, do you know what I mean? Just stop, like, and it doesn't happen, you know, when was the last time you saw Martin Simpson announced as like, gorgeous Martin Simpson? And he is, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I'd be the first person to announce him as gorgeous Martin Simpson. But I have seen the Unthanks introduced. I've seen the Unthanks um, announced on a festival bill on this on a festival's like official Twitter account as like a beautiful as beautiful ladies. And that was the full. It was like we we welcome back these beautiful ladies. And it's like, I mean, that is bloody bonkers, isn't it? <laughs> But I, uh, I, I, I did, I did say I would, I would struggle occasionally for the, for the, uh, for an adjective strong enough. But I mean, and that, and that, and when you, when you're like, if the unthanks, with everything the unthanks have done, with how, how, you know, like titans of the sea, you know what I mean? Like, if, if they can get to the level that they are at, and they still, when they get boiled down to one tweet, that one tweet says it doesn't say award-winning songwriters. It doesn't say, you know, industry leading musicians. It doesn't say incredible singers. It says beautiful ladies. What the hell are we doing? You know, like, and, and I, you know, when I saw that, I replied to that tweet and I said, I don't think that that's an appropriate way to introduce them. But I'll be totally honest with you and say that the festival that I'm talking about, I had been booked the year before. So I knew I wasn't doing myself out of a gig. And if I, and if I didn't know that, I would have kept quiet about it. And that is the problem, isn't it? It's just about like looking where you hold your power and actually like, am I saying something that, you know, like you said, like when, when a woman says something, it's like a black mark against her name, you know? And I, I, I felt comfortable enough with this festival to go, well, I've already played them last year. There's no way I'm getting booked. So I'm not going to risk anything by saying, hey guys, that's a bit sexist. But would I have, if I thought I was in with the chance of that gig? Hard to say, like, you know, we've all got to work, you know? And that's kind of the complexity isn't it and that bit that you were saying Lucy about kind of that 
that space for conversation and that space for narrative. But actually, you know, I've realised just in the space of doing this podcast, those spaces haven't existed before. And every woman that we've approached to come on the podcast has, you know, all responded positively. No one said, no, I don't want to have that conversation. The feedback from people is, God, where were these conversations before? But actually, there's a cost to doing that. You know, we don't get paid for this podcast. We do it as a labour of love. And therefore, you know, once again, women are picking up the emotional labour to educate the masses. As you said, Grace, you know, where are the men doing that? Where are these conversations taking place somewhere else? And other people calling it out, for want of a better term, and raising it, you know, because it shouldn't need to be you as a woman musician looking at a tweet and thinking, should I respond to that or not? You know, our male allies should have been all over that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, when you say the same thing about festival listings, it's like, I mean, I know that it's a big ask, but like, if you are one of those men who's like headlining every single folk festival and you have done for 10 years, like, I think maybe it kind of is on you to kind of say, well, is the headliner of this festival all three days of the festival as the headliner a white man? Yes, it is maybe I sit this one out, like maybe I recommend some of my female colleagues, like, you know, there's no shortage of, of men on the folk scene who will say, oh, you know, like there's, there's, an, there's an amazing wealth of female talent on the folk scene. It's like, well, no, cool, absolutely. But like, you have more power than us at the moment. You do. Like, so, so like, thanks very much for the compliments, but also like maybe give us some of the gigs. <laughs> I love that reflection. I totally love that reflection. And perhaps in this uh, in this time where, you know, we've all had an enforced break, it's an opportunity for us to look at things differently, like not at gigs as competition, but actually how we're all enriched by supporting each other and making a more diverse scene. And I also want to mention here that this is where an audience can jump in to be the ally. It can be really hard for an artist to reflect on sexism that's been um, leveled at them, particularly if they've just walked on stage after it's been said. Um, and as you said, it can be hard to engage with these conversations with these people who essentially hold in their hands whether you get to work or not next year. So, you know, it's a challenge to our listeners, really, to support your artists by being the voice they can't always be because they've got to work and they've got to feed their families and put petrol in the car and all that kind of stuff. But it, I think it'd be very simple, you know, and if, if somebody heard... Um, you know, one of these, I've definitely experienced them. I'm sure every female or female presenting artist on the scene has, you know, beautiful, basically everything about how we look and not how talented or uh, uh, seasoned we are or whatever. If you hear that, you know, you don't have to go and take it up with the MC personally. You could send an email or a tweet to the festival anonymously, even if that felt more comfortable. But uh, bookers and festivals and industry, the folk industry, hearing that it matters to you will actually have more change, perhaps more power to change, perhaps than artists, um, you know, are raising our voices on the matter, because what the audience want, what you, our listeners want, um, it, it is what drives the creation um, of these events, right? So you you hold the power to support your um, your favourite female artists and uplift them and um, and you know make them better paid, essentially. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And and like you know, to to the to the folk industry people that you refer to, you know, who do hold that power, like I I know I know it can feel like a real attack. When you get those emails it can feel like wow you know i've worked all year to like make this festival happen and now all i'm getting is like grief for it but again i would just really implore if you are somebody in that position and you do feel like that i would just really implore you again to just like think about that idea about like are we making this place feel hostile or are we making this place feel welcoming you know and i think it just goes a long way to like look at it that way and um you know feedback's a gift <laughs> Well, and also, you know, doing stuff in advance, right? You know, lots of people have approached the podcast and said, please, will you get so-and-so on? Please, will you get so-and-so on? The same thing happens with, you know, festival bookers and folk clubs, right? If people are saying we want to see this artist, they're more likely to take notice. So not just about after the fact, if something has gone wrong, but actually before the fact, encouraging the festivals to book particular individuals could be really powerful. 
without doubt. So thinking about amplifying voices, uplifting others, celebrating diversity, um, do you have a favourite song on the theme of LGBTQ plus or queer issues or a song by an artist from that community that you'd like to share with us? Oh yeah, uh, I mean, I would say, so there's a couple of people that I would say who are kind of like young, uh, like coming up a bit more. Um, so Maddie Morris is somebody who I think is really, really cool. Um, I mean, I said she's actually completely emerged and I know is like already won those awards and stuff, but if anybody doesn't know her, I'd really uh, check her out. Um, there's a singer-songwriter from Birmingham called Jess Silk, who's also really, really cool. Um, and then like on the slightly, I don't know if she would call herself folk or not, but um, there's an amazing uh, Lancaster-based um, singer-songwriter who I was uh, lucky enough to have on tour with me in um, 2019. His name is Anna Oaksmunger and she wrote an amazing song, a really, really, really amazing song um, about Me Too and about um, that feminism uprising called The Museum, um, which is on YouTube and she's on Bandcamp um, and it's Oaksmunger, like O-A-K-E-S hyphen munger, like fishmonger. Anna Oaksmunger and she writes amazing songs and she's also like an amazing, she's like my hero. She's like an amazing um, like climate change activist. She's like been arrested with Extinction Rebellion and, and all kinds of like, she's just so fearless and so brave. And like, I, I begged her to come on tour with me as a support act and I, the whole time I was just saying like, do you know that you could, you could like be a famous singer? And she was like, I gotta save the world. I haven't got time. <laughs> Which is like, you know, completely like, She's so much more radical and more badass than I am. And I think she's amazing. And also like, you know, I just still want to give a shout out to um, my erstwhile colleagues, Ophelia and Tito, who I just think is, are just two of the best songwriters around. And I know that nobody listening to this won't have heard this because they found amazing success with it, rightly so, as the theme tune to Gentleman Jack. But um, I love Gentleman Jack. I think it's uh, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful song. And, and again, like, just so beautiful for me as a butch woman to like have a butch identity like that really immortalized in an amazing song like that and uh, so yeah I would really recommend just grooving to a bit of Jack the Lass. <laughs> Excellent thanks Grace and we will get all of those out onto the playlist so that people can find them really easily. Oh great stuff cool. It will now I've got Gentleman Jack chorus stuck in my head <laughs> but really really brilliant suggestions. <laughs> Be there for days. It will. I can feel it happening. Thank you so much for talking to us, Grace. It's been awesome and insightful. And people can, of course, find you in all of the usual places on social media and check out what you're doing as we all emerge from our various lockdowns and start making art again. But thank you so much for lending your time. It's been a really powerful conversation. Thank you. And I just want to say to you know to both of you guys, like it's it's not easy work you know like I think you will get a lot of flack for it but these are conversations that really need to be had and at the end of the day like all of us here like you know we critique folk music because we love folk music we want this community to exist and go on and be progressive and you know self-sustain and it's just about like taking the best version of ourselves into the future so I really appreciate yeah I really appreciate you asking me and I also just really appreciate that this exists so thank you very much. What an amazing, talented, brilliant woman. You can find out more about Grace by visiting gracepetrie.com. She has gigs, so many gigs, planning a tour from September with dates that run right through till May 2022. So go forth and check her out because I can assure you being at a Grace Petrie gig is entertaining, it's uplifting, it's powerful, it makes you think. And um, and after a year on more of us not being able to work, she definitely deserves your support. So get on out there and, you know, plan to see some live music in the autumn. I also wanted to give a quick shout out because she mentioned Maddie Morris there and that is a name that I kept seeing and in fact our guest back in March Nancy Kerr also mentioned Maddie as one to listen to and this week I actually got round to um to uh, you know getting getting her record and listening to it and oh my goodness it is 
inspiring and wonderful so if you want to check out some new music or new to you music this week if you haven't come across maddie morris then take grace's and uh nancy's advice and mine too and go forth and listen to maddie morris (laughs) and in the meantime at the risk of being the boring broken record don't forget to follow us on all of our social media platforms um, and please make sure that you drop us your best queer folk songs to help ensure that we have another cracking playlist for you to enjoy over the course of the next month it's so cool that you've been curating the playlist with us we really really love it but in the meantime take care and we'll catch you in a couple of weeks where we'll be chatting to jess morgan and rory skyaska bye for now this podcast was a betty beetroot production